Today's show is brought to you by Bogart Extractors, an industry leader in hydrocarbon extraction. Over the last decade, Bogart has implemented many new technologies, which have helped to revolutionize the way hydrocarbon extractions are performed. Each unit is made with sanitary stainless steel and is built and tested right here in the USA. Their certified system for use in licensed facility meet all NFPA and ASME standards and undergo peer-reviewed by third-party engineers to ensure facilities and its employees can operate safely. Beyond simply making a functional extractor, Bogart has many additional features which make extraction faster and more cost-effective compared to other manufacturers. These features include hydrocarbon failing films to supercharge evaporation rates, heavy-duty explosion-proof pumps for flammable liquids and vapors, industrial chillers capable of maintaining large tanks of solvent at temperatures below 60 Celsius. They also offer extensive tech support and consultation services. So whether you need to set up an extraction lab from scratch or you just need some replacement gaskets, Give them a call at 855-553-3887 or check out their website at www.bogart.com. All right. So getting started, we are back with another deep dive. My name is Mark Stelly. I'm the CEO of CanTrade and the host of The Hemp Show. This is our deep dive conversation. And today I've got Kent Brown with Witnessing History Education Foundation. And ultimately, we just had Kent on our monthly show with our 15-minute segment. We did not have enough time to cover what we were talking about there because, Kent, you are working on a documentary about the history of hemp right. and we went over that briefly on the 15 minutes but we have more time now so i want to dive into everything going on there so wherever you want to start well the the witnessing history education foundation is designed uh and its mission is to um uh, produce documentary films on american history that uh, can be widely broadcast on public uh, television, uh, PBS affiliates, as well as some cable networks and streaming sites. The purpose being to introduce people all over the world, but mostly Americans, to the history of their country. And we do this in a manner in these films that we believe not only tells the basic story without anything political anywhere. I don't, this is the raw story, uh, but in a manner that entertains the average viewer, because that's the person we want to understand history and to like it and enjoy watching it and become interested in it. And so we've made 11 films that cover the, the waterfront from uh, Henry Clay and the struggle for the Union to um, retreat from Gettysburg, to uh, the Lincoln family in Kentucky, which is an, a, a remarkable story, by the way. And then uh, Abraham Lincoln in Illinois. We're right now in the midst of working on a film. A script has been done and we're acquiring all the imagery for it. And it's a, it's a film, it's a 90 minute film on the coming of the American Revolution, um, <clears throat> telling people how it came about. And it's a, it's a story that 
though it covers all the colonies, it is primarily based in Boston and uh, because there's where it all began. But we are also promoting the idea of producing a film on the history of hemp in America. You know, I became interested in this sort of subject, uh, frankly, growing up in Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky, uh, at one point in time in the history of this country, was the largest hemp-producing state in the Union. And that was true almost from the beginning of the 19th century until World War I. And um, other states, of course, produced it. Uh, Missouri quickly followed Kentucky in producing it. Illinois did. Uh, there was some raised in Indiana and Ohio. Virginia did. Uh, there were other states that, that produced it, but none to the extent that Kentucky did. People have often conjectured as to why Kentucky seemed to be a a great producer of that plant. And it probably all boils down to, to the same answer you give to the distilling industry, which of course is also very big in the, uh, in the old Commonwealth. We deal in all the vices, you know, in Kentucky, horse racing, uh, bourbon. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when you're talking about the distilling industry, we're talking about moonshine, right? Moonshine. Well, yeah. Well, a little better grade than moonshine, although moonshine's big too. Uh, but they don't talk about that. Uh, it's, that's a big secret. Uh, but the reason, I mean, distilling became big was the limestone bed in the soil here. Uh, we have an enormous bed of limestone in under the soil in central Kentucky. These are all the counties surrounding Lexington, Fayette County. It covers maybe of the 120 counties, maybe 12 of them are great whiskey producing counties because of the limestone bed. It, that limestone gives the, the water that is used in distilling an edge over water anywhere else. If you go through Kentucky's rural countryside, you'll come across beautiful land in central Kentucky, but always you'll see these, what they call here, sinking springs, where the limestone water comes out to the surface and um, forms a stream, possibly, and the stream goes until it falls down into the, into the limestone bed again. It's the most interesting sort of uh, geological formations you can imagine. But all that is the great contributor to one, the soil being so good and so well watered, that in turn creates plant life uh, unlike any others in, 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 in the country. And so in central Kentucky, you have the distilling industry created because of the water. Uh, then you have the plant life and hemp is among those that found a home here because of the soil. And it's a deep loam clay-like soil on top of this limestone bed that is really well watered. It's the reason too that in the early frontier of Kentucky, uh, cane grew so uh, remarkably well here to the point where cane breaks in central Kentucky 
were some of them were 50 were were six or seven miles long three and four miles wide just cane and it's because it needs the water in the soil hence cane is a bamboo type thing just like uh, hemp is and hemp grew well here and um, it became for these central kentucky counties an immense uh, crop uh, really throughout the entire 19th century Excellent. Excellent. Oh, yes. So I, I would be curious uh, to know, I mean, I don't know specifically why the limestone does so well. My guess would be it's very porous. Porous, it is. So it's very good for water filtration. Um, right. Also, it probably helps to carry some different minerals in the water. Lots. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, well, ultimately, uh, while fil- filtering the, the water, it's also infusing the water with, with different beneficial nutrients. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I would guess those would be a few reasons that, that it would do really well there. Um, it's another, it's another, there's another uh, uh, in, in the horse racing business. Uh, we, of course, love to raise horses here and thoroughbred horses and standard bred horses. Everybody knows the Kentucky Derby. Everybody knows that. And, um, but it's interesting that almost every breeder of thoroughbred horses in America will, whether they live here if they don't don't even live in Kentucky, they will graze their horses in Kentucky for a period of time so they can eat the grass. Again, it's what it does to the sinew of that animal, uh, same as it does for cattle. Um, we owe a lot to just the, the geological formations underneath this state. And um, hemp, was just one of one of the beneficiaries of this. Excellent. So, so you believe that was one of the primary reasons that hemp was hemp grew so well in Kentucky? It just grew so well. Yes, exactly. That large, exactly. really large industry. Now, yeah. now, as far as the the documentary, um, you know, <clears throat> mentioned it's it's the history of hemp in the U.S. US. Does, does it cover prior to the U.S. or does it really start with, you know, hey, here's where hemp started in the U.S. and here's where it expanded and so on. What 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 I I would envision? I haven't written the script yet. Um, that's gonna uh, that'll come later when we really have the the funding in to to make this thing. But um, what what I would envision we would do in this is start with some commentary about the origins of hemp, and it is an it is a, a plant that is native to Asia. However. <laughs> Uh, it's like so much in history. There's a lot we don't know. And, uh, but we find that the early settlers in Virginia, particularly, uh, referred to a brand of hemp as Indian hemp. And this persisted for many, many years. George Washington referred to, he was a hemp grower himself. He referred to a brand called Indian hemp, as did Thomas Jefferson, who also was a hemp producer. Now, other there has been some circumstantial evidence that hemp was grown by Native American tribes along the Potomac and along the James River. What that was, we have very little knowledge, but there seems to have been some hemp grown by the Native tribes, at least some of them. So, uh, we would start with its Asian origins and this possibility of it being raised by the, the tribes here in America. 
But its real introduction to this country was by the English, the English settlers. And those are both settlers of, of what became Massachusetts, Plymouth Colony, uh, 1620, uh, as well as the earlier colony at Jamestown uh, in 1607. <clears throat> there was even apparently a hemp, a, a, an attempt at growing hemp in Sir Walter Raleigh's uh, col uh, colony in North Carolina, um, the colony that failed. In, in certainly in Jamestown and in Plymouth, uh, they began raising hemp. And um, the, the English, the companies that settled um, these areas, particularly the, the company that set, settled uh, Jamestown, was very interested in the settlers there growing hemp. John Rolfe commented once that uh, one of the prime settlers of Jamestown, that the hemp they raise in, in America, in Virginia, was as fine a quality as hemp grown in Europe. Now, in England, they didn't raise very much hemp. And you wonder, why does Britain want the, set, the settlers in the New World uh, raising hemp? Well, in the, um, in the 16th century, um, England became interested in expanding a navy. The other countries, the rivals to England uh, on the continent of Europe, had navies, Britain being a, a colony surrounded by oceans, uh, was a natural to become a naval power. And um, so it began to develop a navy. In order to rig those ships, in order to put sails on those ships, they had to find some fiber, and hemp became the fiber. And um, up until hemp began to really be grown in America in large quantities. Britain got all of its hemp from um, the Balkans and from um, what is now Russia. These were what we would call water-rotted hemp, supposedly the strongest hemp there is. And so Britain was importing it and then making their ropes, their halyards, their rat lines, all those uh, uh, riggings of those ships were made of hemp. And then the sails were made of hemp. So that when they sailed from England to Jamestown, they sailed on a ship that was totally uh, filled with, with cordage and sails made of hemp. But they were from East Europe for the most part. And so the idea was to get the colonies to supply, if hemp was being raised well here, and it was a good hemp, then they wanted them in, in, and they wanted it in England so that they could use it for the Navy. And it became the principal uh, item necessary for a sailing Navy is hemp. And so it was incredibly valuable to England. Uh, no sooner did the settlers come into Jamestown than by 1611, they were requiring settlers to raise hemp. The same thing was true in Plymouth Colony. Uh, I think it was 1633 when they required all the settlers to raise hemp because they could get money for it. Britain would buy it. And then immediately following Plymouth Colony, Connecticut required its settlers to raise hemp. And all of this was for the maritime use of the hemp in 
uh, the cordage and in the sails for the for the Navy, for the British Navy. Wow. And of course, wow. it ruled the seas at one time. Did uh did were the settlers required to produce other uh, crops as well, or was hemp one of those ones that was like a must for everybody? That was a must. That was the one that was a must. It's interesting in Virginia, as you can imagine, one of the big things they raised there was tobacco. Well, they did here in Kentucky too, and they still do. Um, although because of the, uh, the uh, what's happened to cigarettes and smoking tobacco in America, that's diminished considerably. But when I grew up here in, in, in central Kentucky, every farm had a hemp patch, a big one. Wow. And every November were the hemp sales and this, I mean, the, the tobacco sales. So, um, uh, but that's basically gone now. But in the early settling, uh, settlements in Virginia, and then again in Kentucky later, uh, tobacco was the big, the big crop, the big cash crop. Mm-hmm. And it was a hard thing to get the settlers to raise hemp when they could get the money they were getting for, for tobacco. Yet, that's the reason they required it. You're just going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because that's needed, and you can get some money for that, but you can raise your tobacco, but you're going to raise this. So um, it began to, it was, a, it was mandated. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a necessity to have uh, the fibrous oh. crop for everything oh. that the oh. maritime... And all the boats need. Um, exactly right. Now you you mentioned earlier, and I just was curious because I'm not sure what this what specifically meant. But you mentioned water rotted hemp. Yes. Is that is that is that a, the process? How it would? It, yeah, yeah. Hemp. Um, hemp. Uh, once once the stalks of hemp are cut and they're cut down close to the ground, it's a very cautious process of cutting hemp. Once they're cut, then they're stacked. In these in these stacks that look like tents, uh, like a teepee, they look yeah. like a teepee. That's exactly what I thought when you when you started to make that <clears throat> motion. Yeah, yeah, it's just like an Indian teepee, and uh, they're all stacked together, and and they they remain like that for really until the the the, the cool weather starts to come in, and uh, then they are taken down and lay they lay the stalks on the ground uh, for. The stalks to absorb the weather, rain, snow, uh, in Russia and in the in the the uh, East European countries where they grow hemp, uh, they call theirs water rotted because at time in, in many instances they actually take the stalks and put them in water, ponds, creeks, whatever. Uh, but it's also because of the heavy snows where they just sit in water all the time. And the British Navy always claimed that that's the strongest hemp there is. And um, they would get it from, from Russia. But then what happens when Napoleon invades Russia in 1812? Well, all their, their exports are shut down. So they turn to um, uh, American products. But anyway, this, the hemp is, is laid out and it literally sits in this dew or dampness until the grower uh, determines that you can now break it, meaning break each stalk so as to retrieve the fiber alone. And what that, what that rotting does is that it, there's a kind of a, a gel on the inside that holds that fiber in next to the stalk inside. And you want to break that up. And the way you break it up is through the moisture. And once it gets to the point where that fiber is loose inside that stalk, 
They bring hemp breaks out to the farm, out to the fields, and they'll literally break those stalks and pull the fiber out of them. It's a, to, to a farmer who raises this now, it is a very sensitive process. You've got to hit it just right. You've got to make sure you've the, the crop is ready to be cut. You got to make sure that the rotting has has succeeded. Uh, you can't misjudge any of that, which made grazing this a real science. Interesting. Once they gathered up all that uh, fiber, uh, they baled it uh, with respect to the stalks and the remnants of the of the plant. They just leave them on the ground because all the nutrients of that would then seep back into the soil. One thing they said about hemp is that if you raise it, you can grow another crop just where you planted the crop the year before. And once that crops, you can plant another one there. The, the, the soil, it takes a much longer time for the soil to wear out where you're growing hemp than it would for any other, any other plant. And so year after year, they could go back to the same place because of all the nutrients. And ultimately, they burn those hulls of the, of the plant and then scatter that on the ground, too. So it's really kind of a remarkable process of, of growing the, the, the plant, the plants, and then taking everything from those plants and restoring the soil with them after you take out the fiber itself. So it's a neat thing. Excellent. And it's a crazy concept, you know, restoring the soil after you actually <laughs> ravish it with uh, with growing with growing crops. That's that's excellent. Um, now, you mentioned so when you mentioned it's like a science, what, what I was thinking of when you were saying that was very similar to like, say, winemaking, beer making, um, even curing cannabis once it's, you know, once once you, uh, you get your flowers and you have to Right. cure it and burp it properly and make sure right. that the moisture leaves it at a certain rate right. and it stays to a certain humidity. So that's what I thought. It sounds like it's a very similar process where you've got to, you've got to yeah. make sure that you're really following the science and the procedure to the T so yeah. that you end up with a good product at the end. That's right. There, there've been some, some people who've written about this. I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen huge uh, hemp produced like you did in the 19th century, but there, there, there would be farmers who've raised this all their lives who could just look at that stalk on the ground and tell that thing's ready to be broken mm -hmm. and do it. Um, and then there are others who would just have to break a stalk and see whether or not it looked like these were, these were ready to go. So um, right. experience helps. Yeah, that's that. That I mean, that's that farmer, just like uh, you walk the fields with a farmer in a, in a cannabis uh um, grow and right. they can just look at each plant and say, Oh, that one's, that one's ready. You know, that right. one's, that one's close. This one's got three more weeks, you know, based yeah. on yeah. the pistols, the trichomes, the formation of the colas and, yeah. and all of those types of things. Yeah. Um, now a question for you, what was the alternative in the past, um, to hemp as far as sales and cordage and, and all of those things, what was the alternative that was used if hemp wasn't used? flax for the most part? Um, at least for clothing, uh, headgear, um, carpeting, really rugs, throw rugs, bedding. Uh, <clears throat> flax was, is very much like hemp and is grown very in a similar way to hemp. And you even break the stalks 
and pull out the fiber, much like you do with hemp, except it's just not as strong. And so when hemp comes, when hemp becomes available, you know, you can really make ropes out of that, where you don't really have that luxury with flax. But yet flax, you know, was raised by the pioneer just like they raised hemp. And it was essential. So that was gonna be that was gonna be my next question, which you which you started to partially answer was um, in utilizing hemp, did that give you know those countries, those individuals, did that give it, give them a technical advantage as far as a stronger sale, a stronger, you know, row, whatever course, it may be. Of course it did. Of course it did. And you gotta remember, you know, in in and I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of of frontier history. Uh, I mean, I'm when I say frontier, I mean the American frontier up until and through the revolution, the uh, the Kentucky frontier. Those those settlers coming into Kentucky um, in years right before the American Revolution and during the revolution, uh, like Daniel Boone, uh, Simon Kenton, uh, these these people, they if you if you went to any one of their fortified stations. These were the where they had the, the palisade, wood palisades around blockhouses, all those the fortified stations. There would always be two things growing outside that fort. Uh, one was corn. I mean, because they eat it, they need it for whole lots of things. Uh, but they would also have crops of hemp because that's where they made their shirts, their their coats, their their trousers. Uh, their hats, uh, their bedding was out of was out of hemp. Then you would see plants of flax. Um, <clears throat> I remember this great scene uh, during the Revolutionary War: a fortified station just outside of town here called Bryan Station. Daniel Boone married Rebecca Bryan. From they're all from North Carolina, and Rebecca Bryan's family settled what we call Bryan Station, and. Um, in 1782, this is one year after Yorktown, uh, there was a British invasion of Kentucky and uh, they used the uh, Butler's Rangers from New York to lead this. Uh, these were provincials. These were native New Yorkers, but who were loyal to the crown. And they referred to them as Butler's Rangers, named for Walter Butler. And, and this, this contingent of Butler's Rangers, along with elements of at least six Algonquin-speaking tribes from the Great Lakes, invaded Kentucky for the, I guess, the sixth or seventh time during the Revolution. And this time they wound up at Bryan Station. They had previously, uh, in a brutal uh, assault upon a station just north of where Bryan Station stood, uh, in 1780, massacred all the people inside. And so an invasion like this was treated with alarm by the settlers. And so here comes this, all these combined tribes and Butler's Rangers. And what do they do? They conceal themselves in the cornfield and the hemp field. And out from the hemp field, demanding the surrender of the garrison, was Simon Gurdy. Anyone who fiddles with Kentucky's early history knows of the white Indian, Simon Gurdy, raised by the Senecas, but then became an ally and a leader of the Shawnee, who were a principal tribe in this invasion. And Simon Gurdy comes out of a hemp 
field, according to the diarist. So we know there was a huge hemp field there. Uh, out of the hemp field to demand the surrender. And of course, he got a very rude reception from the folks inside the garrison. And that prompted them to try to besiege that fort. Anyway, we won't go into that, but, the, but it illustrates to you in 1782, the size of the hemp production in Kentucky was such that you could conceal between it and a cornfield this entire invasion force is big. Wow. Do you have, uh, are there estimates as far as the size, what the size of that invasion force was? In well, I would say nearly a, 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 a 400, 500. Okay. About 80 of Butler's Rangers at the most. Um, so you've got a size sizable. Yeah. That could do and, some damage. And when you only, only have 40 riflemen inside the fort, um, okay. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that, that that fort, that station, was probably a pretty strategic point and, uh, and as far as a yeah. piece of critical infrastructure for oh, yeah. settlers. So oh, yeah. I guess there was probably a pretty pretty gnarly battle there. And obviously I'm not, you know, <laughs> as you mentioned all these things, I'm not well versed in history at all, um, yeah. like most Americans. Um, well, you know what happened ultimately is the, they, they gave up the siege uh, and these are these are these are crafty folks. Now, the Indians and their British allies or provincial allies gave up the siege and began to move north as though they were retreating back toward the the Ohio country. And um, what happened was all these uh, reinforcements were arriving at Bryant Station. One reinforcement of which was commanded by Daniel Boone, and they followed those invaders all the way up to the Licking River. And um, <clears throat> there the um, the, the tribes and the Butler's Rangers uh, formed an ambush on either side of this Buffalo Trace that they were retreating on against Boone's wishes, uh, vocal, uh, against his vocal wishes. Um, they decided to cross the Licking River and attack those people up there. And they just got mauled. Just oh, wow. terrible, terrible. Daniel Boone lost his son, uh, Thomas Boone, in that in that engagement. The second one of his sons who would die trying to settle and hold Kentucky. So uh, it turned out to be a very sad story in the end. But for Bryan Station, um, there you have the hemp field. <laughs> a huge hemp field. Huge hemp field. And it, it, you, could, you could probably say this with, with, with pretty good assurance, that wherever there was a settlement in Kentucky, just like wherever there was a settlement in Virginia, uh, you'd find a hemp field. I mean, that, that's that deep in, in, in this country's history. Yeah, and as far as time frame, you said this was the, this was the late 1700s? Yeah, this is 1782. 1782? Okay. Right, so, right. So where did, where did hemp progress after this, you know, into the, into the 1800s? Is there any major shift, or was it really, was it still kind of every major colony, every major settlement had some sort of um, hemp crop or hemp farm or hemp industry of, of sorts? There were, I mean, that it, it continued well into really the 20th century in, in many, many regions of the country, including New England, because, I mean, there's where your rope was mostly manufactured for many years up there for the Navy. Um, <clears throat> uh, hemp became uh, almost, in the words of, Thomas Jefferson and of John Adams, 
and of um, George Washington. And by the way, they have great writings about it, those, those, those three people. Um, to, in their words, hemp became a military necessity in America, the raising of hemp. And the reason for it was precisely the reason the British used it for. If we're to outfit a Navy to defend this place, uh, we need hemp because we need the rope and we need the sails. And it's the only fiber we've got that gives us those. Yeah. And so, uh, you, you know, by the, by the War of 1812, uh, you have an entire American fleet of frigates uh, totally outfitted in hemp, uh, rat lines, halyards, uh, and sails. Um, they say that old Ironsides, the, um, the USS Constitution, which you can visit to this day in Boston Harbor, when that uh, ship sailed, it had nearly 80 tons of hemp um, forming its halyards, rat lines, and sails. If you can imagine, it's incredible. Wow. Yeah, I just I just wrote that down. I mean, we we talked about that. we talked about that in the last fifteen minute segment, yeah. but yeah. that's yeah. one of those that's one of those things that's just mind blowing. You're talking about it. You're talking about hemp being just critical to critical, critical to the the yeah. creation of the of the U.S. and ultimately the US. military. You know, here's another here's yeah. another fun here's another fun thing. This this is a this is this is from John Adams. He's from he's from Massachusetts. Um, a member of the Second Continental Congress. He's gonna be one of those on what was called the Committee of Form that would draft the Declaration of Independence. On his way to the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, John Adams penned a note to himself. And that is, there are two things we need, to declare the independence of the colonies and to raise, to encourage the raising <laughs> we're going to get independence, but we need to defend ourselves too. And that's what you use to defend yourself. Wow. Now that you said he wrote that note to himself, is that note still, is yes. that, is that yes. in the museum right now? I mean, that's, yes. yes. Wow. That, that is, that is amazing. Now, now question for you mentioned, you know, we've mentioned so much about hemp being used for, for maritime reasons. Um, but my guess is that it was also used for the ground troops, right? For clothing, yeah. for, for back, oh, for gear. Right. So right. you're talking about literally just outfitting your military. Hemp was right. one of the number one crops right. to utilize that, right? Right. And it was also used for paper. You write on it. <laughs> and, you know, uh, ben Benjamin Franklin was a huge proponent of hemp. Uh, and he published a newspaper. And that newspaper was all published using hemp paper. Wow. <laughs> these, all these, I mean, it's so crazy how all these facts are just lost upon, upon the, the country as a whole for so yeah. long. Yeah. Now, would you say, now, John Adams basically said it right as, as far as it being the number two thing, um, you know, when he, when he wrote that letter to himself. Yeah. But it seems to me like as far as if you were to rank agricultural crops, whether it's fibrous crops or food crops, that hemp would be in the one, two, or three slot as yes. far as um, a necessity for the yes. country right. in, the, right. in the past. Right. Wow. 
And then we, we obviously we lost that along the way. It's yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, you can just look at what I, when I narrated what it was like at Brian station, you got, you got all the corn, but then you got all the hemp <laughs> and then you got flax. So, so almost we need to eat. Yeah. But we need to clothe ourselves. Um, and um, which comes first? Well, you'll freeze to death if you don't have the clothes and you'll starve to death. If you don't have the food. So there's no difference. It's mm-hmm. equally important that they raise those two crops. The O Cannabis Conference and Expo returns to Toronto June 1st through the 3rd, and there are still good booth locations available. This exciting event is free for cannabis retailers and will feature Tommy Chung receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at the O Cannabis Industry Awards. For more information about exhibiting or to register to attend, go to ocannabis.com. That's O-C-A-N-N-A-B-I-Z dot com. Wow. I'm, I'm, my, my mind is blown right now. I mean, I, I just, I love hearing this stuff. It's, I'm, I'm always excited to learn something new. And I feel like every time, I mean, we've only, this will be the second time we've, we've talked. Um, I learn a ton because this is all stuff. This is all stuff that I have no clue about. And, and just a note, just a note. One thing I find interesting is when it comes to history, kids do not like history. I did not like history in school. Now I love history. Now it's like completely flipped 180. Now I turn on, I turn on some of these documentaries and I am just mesmerized by what we live in today and what we, what we spend our time on, what we waste our time on, what we worry about when in the past, I mean, everything that you were just mentioning in some of these, some of these battles, it's like, that was real worry. You know, that was, that was real struggle. We don't know what worry is. No, I mean, we really don't. These days, your internet's out for a half hour, and it's it's a real struggle in the eyes of you know whoever's internet is out. But in the past, I mean, you're talking about struggling to live, to provide for your family, to not get invaded, right? <laughs> right. Whatever it may be, it's it's right. out of control. So it's yeah. it's so yeah. interesting. Yeah, you could you could you could be killed at any minute out there in 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 following these people, and many of them were. Mm-hmm. Um, yet. They survived. And, you know, we, we, we cannot look with too much reverence upon people like that who, who struggled and made it. Right. Well, we are ultimately all the descendants of, of the survivors. I mean, we are, we are. people of, of battlers in the past. Right. Um, now, I want to get to, so part of this very interesting thing, and I don't know how, how deep we're going to dive into this specifically, is where do things start to turn around for him? However, prior to we get prior to us getting there, I'm curious if you've got any more, you know, interesting facts or or interesting situations or battles that that took place before that. You know, before before things started to turn for hemp in this country. Um, as I'll put it this way: I, hemp hemp is a labor intensive crop, which. Um, in, in today's parlance, the one unfortunate thing about labor-intensive crops in America, the story of them, cotton is one, a tobacco is one, hemp is one, is the type of labor it took to raise those crops. Now, in the early colonial times, um, the patches of, of hemp production were much smaller. In Kentucky, they were not enormous. Uh, 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 
fields of hemp, but, but enough for a family to manage. Um, some people say that the only reason slavery was ever sustained in Kentucky was because of hemp. We didn't, we, we, we raise a brand of cotton here, but it's way out in Western Kentucky along the Mississippi River. And nowhere in Central Kentucky or Eastern Kentucky is there any such crop like that. Uh, but we did raise hemp and hemp being labor intensive is the only reason slavery ever was sustained here. So it has that aspect to its old story. After the Civil War uh, and emancipation and the 13th Amendment, when slavery ceased to exist, uh, <clears throat> hemp fell from uh, grace as a plant of choice because there just simply were not enough people to raise it. And it took lots of people to raise. And so by the time of World War I, we get into the early 20th century, hemp has almost ceased to exist as a crop in Kentucky. Wow. There were some patches here and there, but mostly it had ceased to exist. Uh, just like cotton, until the advent of a farm machinery that could go out and mechanically plant it and harvest it, um, cotton declined as well. And uh, it's made a resurgence uh, significantly, but hemp didn't make a resurgence. Um, and that really got, because it got mixed up with the, um, with the drug deal. The, the, the marijuana aspect to it. That kept it down for a long time until really 2018, when finally the farm bill uh, repealed uh, the former statutes restricting hemp, making it a, a narcotic uh, subject to the uh, regulation of the federal government, uh, prohibiting it being raised in 1970 to now uh, reopening it back up. And um, so hopefully we'll see a resurgence of it. We now have a more mechanized way to handle the, 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 the planning and the harvesting of it. And it's just like with cotton. And um, we should see a resurgence of it, particularly I, in this state. I, I definitely believe we are. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it every day, all the time, especially with, with conversations oh, yeah. like we're having right now. You know, oh, yeah. people that I oh, speak yeah. with on the hemp show. You know, they're they're dedicated. People are passionate about it, not only for they are the medical benefits, but also for the the positive yeah. the positive things it can do for the environment, for all the things it can create. You know, yeah, fibrous this, fibrous that. I mean, I'm we I hear things all the time. The the hempcrete things like um, the cellulose cellulose of hemp being used to replace like graphite and silicon Silicon Valley right. and stuff like that. Right. Obviously, I'm not an expert it's on any of that. It is astonishing what yeah. they can do with hemp now. Uh, I have a friend who, by the way, his companies are a sponsor, are the, among the first uh, commercial sponsors of the seed and fiber of wealth. It's um, Echo Fiber and Hemp Black. Echo Fiber is headquarters in um, Georgetown, Kentucky, about 12 miles from Lexington. Hemp Black is a Western North Carolina company. But their president of those companies, Eric Wong, who's a graduate of West Point, uh, a colonel in the army, a terrific guy. Uh, his his facility here in Georgetown, he 
they have been a contributor. They're, they're among the early big contributors to the film. And um, he took me on a tour of his, of his facilities, brand new facility out there. Uh, the wallpaper in there is all made of hemp. The carpeting is all made of hemp. All the seat coverings are made of hemp. Everything in that plant is made of hemp. Even the walls, they, 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 they take that hemp fiber and they can make boards out of it that they use for the walls. Right. It's the most amazing thing I ever saw in my life. All made of hemp, everything. So, I mean, it shows you how versatile this, this, this plant is. And it, it's got to make a resurgence. Right. Just got to. It's as if we've been we've been stunting progress for, yeah. for the last you know what is it 70, 80 years, um, yeah. and and my guess is my guess is that facility is not only sustain sus, uh, sustainable with with utilizing hemp everywhere, but also uh, probably going to last a long time. It's probably going to last a long time, <laughs> right, 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 right. So I mean, uh, he he's he's into this into the film because of what it'll do to the general understanding and reception out there in the world about hemp. Um, what the, right. the purpose really is to get it away from the, the marijuana thing, to get hemp out there for what it is and what it has always been in America. And that is a versatile plant that, uh, that provides uh, the country with essential things. Uh, in its in its fiber um, that can be used uh, and then reuse. It's a reusable thing that it produces. Yeah, you get a new crop every year. Instead of cutting down trees, why don't we raise hemp? You can make all your boards out of hemp. And it grows, <laughs> and it grows like a weed. It I'm grows like a weed. It's a fast-growing plant. Yeah. Yeah, your right. growth cycle is so fast. Um, you know, I... I would just guess, and you know, if I if I look forward, say, 20, 30 years from now, I, yeah. I believe that's going to be the case. Is yeah. in, I think so too. Most paper is going to be hemp. Most packaging is going to be hemp. Most right. most right. goods. There's going to be far more hemp shirts. I mean, I don't know what <laughs> what I'm I'm not sure what the shirt is I'm wearing right now, but it's likely that 20 years from now, this will be the general shirt. Like, hey, it's not cotton. You know, this is this is a hemp shirt. Well, now, it'd be nice for you to say, well, Daniel Boone wore a hemp shirt too, <laughs> which he did. Daniel Boone's a badass too. Yeah, that's right. That's that's for sure. Now, now you mentioned, uh, you know, trying to get hemp away from from say marijuana. Um, obviously, they're the, they're the same plant, and I actually want to kind of bring it back to to what we were talking about before. You know, with the history of hemp in the colonies, um, right. and you know, ultimately. Now, now, I guess my question here is, is what documentation is there for, say, the psychoactive effects of hemp or the smoking of hemp in the past with the colonies, besides just utilizing it for its fibrous um, properties? You know, what, what is there in the past um, history with that? There is there's virtually none, really. Really? And in fact, I, I, uh, I, I went through a, a text about hemp that I, I, the history of hemp that I really enjoy. And it's, it's just about Kentucky's experience written by a James Hopkins, who was a professor of history at the University of Kentucky back in the 1940s and 50s. And he came out with this book, I think in 1951. But he even mentions that uh, just emphatically that uh, there is absolutely no evidence 
that it was ever used by the early settlers here or uh, the colonists in Virginia uh, or anywhere else uh, for reasons other than its fiber. That's it. That's what they raised it for. Mm-hmm. And the rest, they, you know, they, 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 they fertilized the ground with, literally, and didn't care about. So the fact that you could take the flower and the leaves and turn it into, and it's marijuana, uh, never entered their minds. Now, now, do you, would this be because that um, specific strain had a very low THC amount in the past if it was just industrial hemp and maybe at some point there was a, you know, um, from another, another strain from, from Asia imported that then had a much higher THC content. Like at what point did things start to shift when it became like, Hey, people are smoking it for this reason, this reason, um, and so on, like within the history. It becomes a phenomenon really of the 20th century more than anything. And it, um, and it, 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 you saw it at the end of World War One, um, and and I think most of the historians I have studied on this, particularly Dr. Hopkins, says that really World War One, post years of World War One, are the ones where you saw uh, the the plant being used for um, entertainment, so to speak. Um, and um, one thing I want to do in the in the film that we envision is to lay out the difference in what we're talking about here. Because I don't, I, I wanna make sure this, our history of this is totally free of all the stuff we see about marijuana. And um, lay that out right at the beginning and um, reinforce it at the end. That what we're talking about here is the use of, of, of industrial hemp creates a fiber that is as versatile as anything on earth and has been an an essential part of the history of this country, not anything else. And so, you know, someone asked me, well, you know, do you want the marijuana, this or that? And I said, I don't even have a position on it. I don't want to even get in it. It's not any of my affair. I don't care. What I want to see is, um, is hemp put in the light of its history. I find if you can, if you can, if you can link yourself, what you do to something that's deep in the country's history, you feel good about it. You just do. And I find history is one of the great um, means by which you can create enthusiasm, a, a desire to become a part of something, if you can tie it to the country's history. This is certainly one of those. Because it really is, it's a link to early America and America all the way up until the 20th century is very deep. Right. Now, I, I've always looked at these as two completely separate things as far as the medical purposes of marijuana slash cannabis and the, you know, fibrous or, you know, industrial purposes of hemp. However, you know, this was going to be my next question. You started to kind of answer it, answer it briefly there, is that in telling the history of hemp, there is a segment and a time period where it gets completely intertwined, right, with cannabis and marijuana. And ultimately, it leads to the downfall and the prohibition of hemp due to right. marijuana. Is right. that going to be? Is that going to be a major segment in the film? 
And is there anything you can share with us as far as how that process came about? Well, it came about, yeah, I, there will be. And I, I, you, you almost have to mention that. And of course, it came about, and I, I dare say, a lot of it came about through competition. Competition with, uh, with new forms of um, substances you can use for the purposes for which hemp was usually used for. Uh, synthetic fibers, um, other types of, 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 of fibers that if, if you encourage the raising of hemp be, would become continually a competitor of these new forms. And you see, you see that uh, to a degree in the, uh, in the alarm that came about in the 1930s uh, that resulted in hemp being taxed uh, to an ex- to a, a terrific extent. Taxed it out of existence. What they did, yeah. And then uh, by uh, during the, uh, the 1960s and then to 1970, when they actually banned it by by legislation under the in the Nixon years, it was the uh, it was the drug, the rise of the drug culture, and this was one way to address it. Just get rid of all of it, right? And then of course by uh, 19, uh, t- 2016 to 2018, uh, you finally get all that redone and hemp now made uh, to be uh, capable of legally raising it. And, um, and I, was, I was proud to say that, uh, you know, Kentucky kind of took a lead in that and that its, um, its senior senator was the one who introduced the bill to uh, undo all that. And um, so that happened, and um, we're now back at square one. And the question is, do we do we embrace it as for what it is, and move forward with all that it can do? Uh, I think we should. And the best yeah. way I know how to present that that case is to tell its history. Right, right. And I, I couldn't help but think of something like if I feel like every year, every few years, there's some sort of new super food. Some sort of new super, um, you know, I don't know whether it's papayas or pomegranates or, or whatever, some sort of fruit that people didn't eat for a long time. Then, you know, they find out that it's got a lot of medical benefits for, for different right. reasons. Right. Now, as far as fibrous crops, we're talking about a super crop. Yeah. You know, so something that's going to, something that's going to be back in the mainstream as far as, and it's already started, uh, but it's going to get there. So I think. 100% people are going to embrace it. But what's extremely important is that uh, the country has a base knowledge of how it got to where it's at, you know, mm-hmm. and then how in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was still completely illegal and right. ultimately right. why it got there. So right. I think that could turn a lot of heads and change a lot of minds because right. even to this day, right now, there's still a large segment of the population that believes that it should be completely illegal. Right. And, and for what it is not, unfortunately, right. for what it's not. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Although it's got close variations to, sure. to other things that scare people, right? The, the THC <laughs> side of it. I'll tell you what's, what's really interesting is that even in the times in the 1930s, when uh, they taxed it almost out of existence, what happens during World War II when the Japanese take over uh, uh, Manila in the Philippines, which was our source of hemp, by the way? The government turns to farmers and say, we want you to grow it. Now, in Lexington, Kentucky here alone was the parachute plant 
where they made parachutes out of hemp for the GIs in World War II. Wow. Uh, uh, it's, again, there's parachutes being made out of hemp. <laughs> so they found it necessary to raise hemp for the war effort. This is, this is 1942. When, and, and, and this is, and that's, and that's post, that's post tax, right? Yes, post tax, post tax. And so the, there, there's always been this, um, this, this contradiction in policy where they want to get rid of it and yet they need it. <laughs> wow. I think, I think we've grown up enough to know that you take things for what you need, no matter. I certainly hope that's the case. We want to help it make that be that to be that is what we right. want. Right. And and when you look at it, like one of the ways I look at it is uh, no matter what it is, it can be abused. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's just there's certain things, right, like, mm. like cannabis that it was perceived to be, you know, extremely bad or negative or this and that. And that's why it was there's and there's a lot of other reasons for the prohibition. But um, one of the ones was it was being abused as a drug, you know, right. as, as a uh, psychoactive compound. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about everything right now. I mean, uh, you know, cigarettes got abused. Those got regulated and, and, and you know, now they're on the decline, but those got abused. Uh, caffeine gets abused right. by every day uh, right. or by, by people every day, including, including myself sometimes, even though I'm not one to. I'm caffeine. afraid I'm a caffeine abuser. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, I would, I would just guess, and I'm sure there's statistics out there that we can find that would say something like caffeine's probably the most abused drug in the country. Mm-hmm possibly, you know, so anything, anything can be abused to some extent. And, but ultimately to see the possible possibilities of the abuse and then completely have that outweigh the benefits on the other side, you know, that is just, it's detrimental to the country as a whole. Absolutely. No, I agree with that entirely. Yeah. So, so where, where do we go from here? I mean, we talked about some possibilities of the future. Um, Where do we go from here with the, with the documentary film, you know, uh, we, we talked a bit in our 15 minute segment about where you're at with the processes of that I want to dive more specifically into that. So, you know, where's it at right now? What all do you need? Where's that going to take you? If people can go on the website of, um, witnessing history, you can, you can, you can Google, uh, witnessing history, education, foundation, hemp. You can also Google seed and fiber of wealth hemp film. Uh, either one takes you to the section of the website where we discuss this film. And you'll go through a brief history of hemp with some gorgeous illustrations. Look at those illustrations. You can see how pretty this film would be. Uh, paintings of the USS Constitution fighting the, the, the British ship Guerriere, um, the uh, portraits of Henry Clay. It, you, you, you get a, a great idea of how, how pretty the film would be by looking at the history and reading the history. And it'll tell you about the basic story of hemp in America. Uh, Then you'll see a description of the film itself. And uh, then you'll see a breakdown of the budget for that film. It's about $240,000 to create a film like that, which in most circles of filmmaking is pretty cheap, (laughs) but we're able to do it for that. And we're able to get these broadcast on public television. And um, we just finished a film, came out at the end of 2019 um, on Abraham Lincoln in Illinois. 
And our partner brought up is Kentucky Educational Television, which is a PB, one of the largest PBS affiliates. And KET not only broadcasts our films all the time, but it will take our films and recommend them to the National Educational Telecommunications Association in Columbia, South Carolina. And that's kind of the catalog arm of PBS. It takes films that it thinks are the best that its affiliates produce. And then if it likes them, it will then make those films available to all 247 PBS affiliates in North America, including the one in the District of Columbia and in the Virgin Islands. And the Lincoln film was immediately picked up by NETA. And so it was broadcast on all 247 uh, of the PBS affiliates. And so that's how we get into the PBS system is we just got to make a film that's that's excellent enough with its how we make the film. Mm-hmm. All the different aspects of making the film are perfect enough uh, and has a story that they like, which this one will, by the way, right. this one really will. Then we'll get a broadcast everywhere. Right. Uh, then we always like to put them up on... Um, on our YouTube channel and other YouTube channel, our own YouTube channel has 2 million views and uh, it's only been up a year and a half. Wow. So well, you've, got, you've got some excellent, you've got an excellent backlog of, of films <laughs> and content for that YouTube channel. Well, thank you very much. Our, our podcasts are also up there so people can watch them as they are on our website. It's witnessinghistory.org is the uh, website of the foundation. So, um, and you can watch all the films and listen to all the podcasts on the website as well. Excellent. So that's the next step. We got to get got to get this thing funded. We talked in the 15 minute segments about how how we're going to get that stuff out. We haven't published that one yet, so that'll be coming out soon. Okay. Uh, but we're going to start get that out. We'll get this out as well. Now okay. I'm curious as far as as far as strategies to make that happen because I mean we've got a big reach with hemp businesses, so I'm I'm pretty excited just to see once we do publish that what happens. Um, how does that process work for funding if a company or an entity wants to, um, you know, donate to, to this project? You know, how does that work? Like uh, Hemp Black did and um, Echo Fiber. Um, well, and, and we also have a large producer in Montana who has contributed. John Porterfield um, uh, has contributed to this film. Um, what 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 it takes really is for if there's an interest for them, by gosh, to give me a call. Uh, I I I like to close those kind of deals, mm-hmm. um, and I like to make sure they understand they can do this with confidence, and um, that uh, when we say we're going to produce a film, by gosh, the film's produced, and um, but we do need to raise the funding for it. And it's it's that's a hard job. And but the best way to do it, if if it catches someone's fancy and they want to contribute to this, uh, to call me or or email me and I'll call them. Um, But I think a good conversation on the phone is 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 a way to start. Sure. If it leads to something else like a personal visit, we'll talk about that. Sure. Now I'm on, I'm on the witnessinghistory.org website and I clicked the make a gift Mm -hmm. button. Um, That took me to the the donation page. Would that be one place where people- That's one place where you can do it. Okay. 
can also write a check and it gives you under the, on the donate page, it gives you the address where it's to be sent. Okay. But I would also recommend they give me a call. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, the way I look at it is if you're really going to have two different types of, of donations. You're going to have, um, you know, individuals or businesses that are doing large amounts, right. Where that, that should take a conversation. Then you have, you know, someone who may just be listening to the podcast here and want to donate $20. Sure. You can go right on that, but that donate button. Mm-hmm. Now, have you, uh, have you considered, have you considered other, um, platforms in raising at all? Well, we, uh, most of it has been, uh, through individuals who have already contributed, who are in the hemp industry. Okay. Um, I like to see the industry, people in the industry talk to other people in the industry about it. Right. Uh, it's the best way to do it. Uh, it's like politics. If you get, if your neighbor comes over and says, Hey, vote for Joe, you know, you'll give it some serious thought. If you right. like your neighbor, right? And so I, I've, I feel that's the best way to do it, and that's why I appreciate a program like this, yeah. because it really does get to all those people in this industry who, who have a vested interest in seeing it succeed. Right, and I, I know we have our own, we have our own little schedule on when we publish. I cannot wait to get your episode out because I think it's gonna, <laughs> I think it's just going to get I think it's going to get a ton of engagement because. Wonderful. Like I said, I, I love learning and anybody that's in this industry and that's in love with the cannabis plant, the hemp plant, um, you know, I would believe that they would listen to what you're saying and and also be super curious about right. learning more. And then right. also I look at it at the similar way to you look at it as the, the benefit as a whole. Once this right. documentary gets produced, mm-hmm. how many eyes it will open, how many heads it can turn, um, you know, and start pushing right. the country in the right direction. Right. Right. Well, that's what we want to do. Right. Now I mentioned, I mean, I, I was just curious about if you've considered any, any of the other funding platforms. Cause um, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting if, if something like this would resonate on like a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter. Um, if those are any things you've ever, ever considered. I mean, those have gotten super popular. They have gotten super popular. We, we, we did try a, a, a Kickstarter some time ago, but it was for a film on hemp that was really more related to just Kentucky's role in it. And um, frankly, so long as if those things are successful, it's because of the people you hired to promote that. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say next. (laughs) There's no reason you can't do a campaign on any of those unless you have an entire marketing strategy associated with that campaign and and some sort of team. Running. And it may be that if we can raise a certain amount of threshold funds that we could turn to something like that, but it takes serious money to do that and yeah. to make it successful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredibly true. So yeah. that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I know if you were to just make one of those campaigns and send it out into the ether, the internet, it would just get, it gets lost in the noise. Lost. It's just yeah. lost. Nobody, very few people see it. And when they see it, it's like they're, they're on to the next thing within, right. within five minutes. Right. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think, I think this has been, this has been a great conversation. I mean, we've been on for, for well over an hour here. Um, yeah, I, we're getting to the point where we're going to start wrapping things up. Now, is there anything else you wanted to cover or is there anything specifically you wanted to mention before we jump off here? No, other than, uh, I think we've covered uh, uh, everything. I, I want people to know that one, we, 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 we face the production of our films in a way that 
we, we try to make each one of them beautiful to look at, entertaining. If you've watched our film on the life of Daniel Boone, uh, most of those scenes are recreated scenes of his so that the viewer doesn't have to try to imagine what it looked like. And many people have had so little introduction to history that they can't really imagine what it is. Right. So what we do is we try to do it for them so that they can see the drama behind what we, what, what's happened. And um, you, can, you can imagine a scene at, for instance, Bryan Station, where out from a hemp field comes Simon Gertie. I mean, I, 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 that's a, it's a scene I've dreamed of doing yeah. with this film. And then there are just hosts of others, uh, uh, scenes of them harvesting hemp, uh, the breaking of hemp, all those things, are, are they vanished from the landscape. And it would be great to see them again. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, mean, I haven't watched the story of Daniel Boone. I'll, I'll definitely give that one a watch. But you're, what you're talking about is like live action reenactment. So, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You're, you're narrating the story, but you're also seeing it, even right. though it's not the, you know, even obviously there weren't cameras back then. So, no, <laughs> okay. no, no. And, and the scenes are behind the narration. They're mean, all behind the narration. You mean Daniel Boone didn't have an iPhone? I mean, <laughs> shame on him, Lord. Yeah. He's taking, yeah. He was taking yeah. selfies during the battle, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I'm living right here in what was his home county. This is where he. This is where he wanted to stay. Wow, very. Uh, cool. Yeah, well, it's really cool. So this this is awesome. Yeah. Like I said, I think I think we're we're good to kind of wrap it up here. Um, what I'd like to do is in the near future, just schedule some checkups where we, where once, once we get these other, you know, shows published and, um, you know, start getting the information out there related right. to donating to the film and stuff, uh, just some checkups just to see what right. the progress looks like. You know, right. if, if it's getting the funding it needs, you know, are you currently in production? You know, once you start to get into post-production and, right. and that thing's ready to be published, like, I want to get you back on here ASAP to, to oh, this is fun. I enjoy being with you. Great. It's great cool. fun. Cool. Cool. So that, that's going to wrap it up. So thank you. Thank you very much for joining My us. My pleasure. Thank you. This is a blast. Thank you for your interest. Awesome. Very welcome. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.